We're going to look at the book of Hebrews just real quick. As we consider the candle of joy and our focus today, which is the actual passion narrative of the cross in Luke chapter 24. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, real quickly, Hebrews 12. It says this, that we are looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. This is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so as we just, we thank you, Lord, for this advent of the candle of joy, as we consider how he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. And Lord, I pray that you would connect us to your heart as we look at these events of the passion narrative of your trial and your death on our behalf for the joy that was set before you. Connect us to your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, gang, so I do want to encourage you, notes, if you don't have them, don't be, you know, bothered if you have to get up and go get them. Um, We are going to be going through the notes today. They're on either side of the sound booth. And they're very long. I'm not going to have time to cover them all. And I want you guys to be able to, to have these for your own study. I'm going to focus on a couple of things that I feel like the Lord highlighted to me concerning that passion narrative. Did I say Luke 24? Luke 23. Forgive me. Luke chapter 23. So Jesus has just been taken before the Sanhedrin, questioned. Mark talked last week about this season, this incredible intense moment or season of pressure and how how many many failed um, in the the light of that pressure of the, the persecution and trial of Jesus. So now we get to it. Chapter 23, verse 1, Then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, our King. And so here's the scene, is the Sanhedrin, or this, this actually when it says the whole group of them, the whole body of them in verse 1, it's talking about, the Sanhedrin, which is about 70 elders, it's talking about all the Pharisees, all the Sadducees, and the mob that were all there. Now we're, we're progressing. They've arrested him at night. They started questioning him in the council of the Sanhedrin in the morning, and now they bring him before Pilate. So everybody's awake now. The whole mob is gathering. You've got a picture. Jerusalem is absolutely crowded. It's Passover. There, it, it's just a full city. And here comes this mob and all the Jewish leaders in to seek Pilate. And the reason they're seeking Pilate is because they're looking for the death penalty. They weren't given the authority 
by Rome to put anybody to death. If anybody, they were given authority to sort out various other charges in their own courts, but when it came to the death penalty, they had to bring it before the Roman leader, and that was Pilate. Now, I want you to read what Philo, he's a, a historian, a Jewish historian, and he wrote about what Pilate was, what, what he was like, and I want to read this real quick. He was corrupt. His corruption, acts of insolence, his habit of insulting people, his cruelty, his continual murders of people, untried and uncondemned, his never-ending, gratuitous, and most grievous inhumanity. That's what he was like. So what are they thinking? These Jewish leaders are thinking it's a shoe-in. He loves killing people anyway. He kills them for no reason. Surely, if we all, this whole mob, comes together and say kill him, he'll be like, great. He was a bloodthirsty, cruel person. I mean, just that's his, his legacy. All, many historians say that. And the accusation they had to bring was so that Pilate could try him and, and condemn him to death in, in light of how he was breaking Roman law. What they were really mad about is how he was representing their belief system, their faith, their leadership. But they didn't bring that. They brought, hey, he's stirring up revolution. He's stirring up a revolt against Rome. He's telling people not to pay taxes, and he's claiming that he's the king, not Caesar. Right? And they're asking for the death penalty. Interestingly, Pilate, he... Um, he sees him, and you've got to picture the scene. Jesus has already been beaten. He stayed up all night. It says of him that he was meek in his own presence. Like, when you got around Jesus, he didn't have some kind of persona that he gave off, like of a great leader. He wasn't six foot seven, and, you know, like, everybody, it says that he wasn't that much to look at. Isaiah says this. He wasn't recognized by man as the Messiah that he was. So here comes this humble quiet man who's been beaten, standing before Pilate, and Pilate looks at him and he goes, you, the king of the Jews? That's the the context of, it's actually when he says, are you the king of the Jews? The context of the Greek language is sarcasm. You, are you the king, really? Can you imagine how many revolutionaries Pilate has run into? These wild-eyed leaders that are, you Romans, rah, rah, rah. you know what I mean? These are, these are the kind of people he's probably used to. Here comes this quiet, reserved man, not giving any defense of himself, standing there, and he goes, really? Let's go ahead and go to the next page. Now, Pilate, you got to get this, does not want to put him to death. Some, this... Initial interaction that he has with Jesus, and we see other recordings of it in the other Gospels, but this initial meeting that he has, and and another Gospel says that his wife had this encounter, a dream, and says, have nothing to do with this guy. Don't touch him. Pilate, who is normally bloodthirsty, he goes, hey, I don't want to do this death penalty thing. And when he heard that he was Galilean, he says, hey, send him to Herod. We've actually given Herod authority over that region, the region of Galilee. And so, let's send him to Herod. And so, he is sent to Herod. Herod is incredibly happy because he has been seeking an audience with Jesus since Luke chapter 9. 
He's been seeking an audience with him. He was doing these miracles. He's like, man, I want to meet this guy. I want to, you know, I want to see him do a miracle. And that's exactly what he goes after. Jesus walks in and he's like, oh, will you do a miracle for me? I've been seeking this, you know, this, this experience with you that everybody says, and Jesus won't even acknowledge him, won't even talk. This infuriates Herod after he questions him and questions him, and he won't, Jesus won't even acknowledge him. And Herod, in his frustration, beats him again, puts a fancy robe on him, and sends him back to Pilate. So Pilate is back in the judge's seat, and he comes up with another plan. It was Pilate's historical practice that he would release one prisoner. Now, you've got to imagine, he was this ruthless leader who imprisoned people wrongly all the time, just because he didn't like them, or whatever. And so there's all sorts of Jewish people, family, you know, these are all the, the mob is there, the leaders are there. Surely there was some wrongfully accused beloved, you know, Jewish men in prison, and his practice was to release one every year during Passover. And it was this way that he could kind of keep that crowd kind of endeared to him. Oh, he's a nice guy. He releases a prisoner every year. And he thought, I'm going to release a prisoner, but I'm going to release the worst one. We've got a guy in here. It says a notorious prisoner. A heinous is the word that actually means that everybody, when they thought of this name, Barabbas, they thought of someone that everybody hated. He had murdered, it says he was a thief, he was notorious as a thief and a murderer, and stirring up crowds for revolt. And so Herod, or I'm sorry, so Pilate thinks, I know, I'll tell him, hey, I'm going to release one prisoner like I do every year, you can either have Barabbas back in your public, you know, back amongst your children, (laughs) back in your community, or you can have this man, Surely. He's thinking, Pilate's thinking, surely they're going to pick Jesus. But they don't. As I was studying this, I was immediately seeing the picture of the fact that Barabbas is really representing me. Letter E in your notes, the title I have here is the sentence of the innocent one, and the freedom of the murderer. Here we see the divine exchange that we all have come to believe with tears of gratitude. That the innocent one dies in place of the guilty, and the guilty one is set free. Now at this point, Pilate says again, I find no fault in this man. I see no reason that he should be put to death. I'm not going to do it. He goes, I'm going to flog him and I'm going to release him to you. And then he says it one last time. And Luke's going to point out that he says it a third time. Now this is important biblically. When we see something repeated a third time, like we have so many examples of this. The angels, they say, holy, holy, holy. Right? When he sits down with Peter, he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me a third time? Right? This sort of thing. And so the idea is that number three 
both biblically and in Jewish culture. It speaks of um, a clear statement of ultimate or totality of truth. He is innocent. But yet the crowds cried all the more for his death. Luke highlights the guilt of the Jewish people more than any other gospel writers. And some of the other gospel writers really pin it on on Pilate. But you'll see in... um, We'll find the verse here just so we're on task with our Bible. Verse 23. That they were insistent and with loud voices asking that he be crucified and their voices began to prevail. Verse 25, And so he released the man, Barabbas, that they were asking for, that had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but delivered Jesus to their will. Now, I don't believe Luke's goal here was to stir up anti-Semitism and say the Jews are responsible for his death and, and they should be hated for it. That's not his goal. Although church history is full of that. Rather, what we're to see here is according what the Lord has done is it allowed the very people, because God is beautiful. I love singing the songs we sang this morning about let us see your beauty. We want to see it. Well, here's a piece of it. Is that He allows the very death penalty to come from the people that He was dying for. So they could see the beauty of it. So they could see the great love of it. Right? So when they look back, it says, Behold, one day they'll look upon the one that they pierced and they'll be struck to the heart. He came to His own and through their rejection of Him, He gave them all eternal life and freedom. I think of Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. If you wouldn't mind putting that up. It's the story of Joseph. How many of you guys know Joseph is a type and shadow of Messiah, of Christ? He was betrayed by his own brothers. He was thrown into prison. And through that, the Lord used him to sustain the life of all his people. Right? And Joseph says this. He comes to this realization as he's now the second in command of all of Egypt. And he sees that God has raised him up to bring life to all the Jewish people. And he says this, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to keep my people alive. It's the beauty and the wisdom of God. Let's go ahead to the death sentence carried out on the next page. I want to go ahead and get a grid for what this scene is. And to be honest with you, and we do have some kids in the room today, so I'm going to spare you some of the details. I did put it in the notes. But if you've ever seen the Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, right? Historically, that's very accurate. What happened to him at the flogging? What it was like to carry the cross through that crowd? Now, we're going to have a little demonstration here in a minute. So, Rory, you can prepare yourself. I put this on Rory like an hour ago, so. Let's look at the procession under letter A, verse 26. 
after enduring an extremely intense sleepless night. Remember, Jesus was up all night sweating, you know, sweating like drops of blood and crying out to the Lord. He's up all night. He's then beaten in the Sanhedrin, right? Surely he hasn't had anything to eat or drink. He's then brought before Pilate. He's drugged to Herod's palace. Herod beats him, sends it back. He brings back to Pilate. Pilate flogs him. And you guys saw that scene in The Passion of the Christ where they actually, what they whip him with is meant to bruise bone and break bone and tear flesh open. Many didn't even survive that. So he endures that. And then he's forced to carry the crossbeam. So this was very common as they would, they would have the main beam of the cross at the site because it was so heavy, but the crossbeam they would actually tie to them and make them carry it. Now, historically, the crossbeams that they found in you know, archaeological digs and this sort of thing weigh between 100 pounds and 135 pounds. So, I have, because I have... Uh, a key to the CrossFit gym. I have 115 pounds on a barbell right here. So right in between 100 and 135 pounds. How many of you guys think Rory's a pretty buff guy? I do. Yeah, he's a good-looking fella. Isn't he breezy? So now Rory is a probably... Rory, how old are you? He's 32. Right? Perfect example. All right, now what I'm going to ask Rory to do, if he can, is we're going to put this weight on his back. And we have insurance for this. And we do have a concrete floor here, so if the weight falls off and bounces off the floor, it's not going to hurt anything. I mean, it might hurt this carpet, but, but that's probably okay, right? And so, can you imagine now, and we're going we're gonna to let him carry it. I'm just going to have him walk it back and forth. And if he can, we'll see if he walks it back and forth, and if he can, to actually, he would have had to take it off the ground in a lunge like this. And he would have been knocked down multiple times by those crowds and, and the stumbling of the, yeah, that's heavy, yeah? It's heavy, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so walk it back and forth. Now, he was, can you imagine, sleepless night, major blood loss, his entire back and front is open and bleeding. He'd have been whipped. And he would have been facing, you could keep walking, he's been facing the, uh, the pressure of that jeering crowd throwing stuff at him, pushing him, shoving him, spitting on him. He's carrying it. All right. Can you lunge a step? Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now imagine this. 650 yards is how far he had to carry it. 650 yards. You can just let that fall off your back. Yep. Good. Now that'll be available. Let's give Rory a hand. If you guys just want to feel that, that's going to be up here and, and we'll help. If you guys want to put it on your back and feel it, I, I really brought that so you could understand what it was like. Um, so what happens is he can't carry it. He physically can't carry it. And they grab a guy named Simon of Cyrene and make him carry the cross. 
I want to look at this as well because I feel like not only do we have this character, Barabbas, who is a real guy who really represents, again, us in the exchange, the guilty one for the innocent. Now we have Simon. He doesn't know probably who Jesus is. It says he was from North Africa. He was there for the Passover. He's just there, and they grab him and say, carry this. Very similar to our introduction to Jesus for the very first time, and then we find out that he calls us to what? Pick up our cross and follow him. So Simon begins to carry this cross behind him on the way to the place of the skull, Calvary, Golgotha, the place of death. Simon carries the cross. Not much is known of Simon. However, I believe he was chosen for this moment to be the shadow of the follower of Jesus. The antithesis of Simon Peter who claimed he would follow Jesus and then didn't. Here we have another Simon. Same name. And he says, I will carry it. He carries it behind Jesus. Probably, I don't know how far Jesus made it. Rory, what do you think? Think he even made it 100 yards? Right? And you're, you're not whipped to death and you're feeling all right this morning. And so Simon would have been absolutely, give me a nod, sweating. This would have been hard for a healthy, normal, you know, like, again, very buff, good-looking fellow like Rory to carry this beam. As a side note, this is interesting and fun. You can find it. I got some scriptures there for you. It's traditionally held that Simon of Cyrene became a believer through this experience. He was exposed to that. Something happened in that exchange as he sweated and bled with Jesus on the way up to the cross. And it's interesting that it points out that he was the father of Rufus and Alex. It says that's like Mark puts this in his gospel. Hey, this Simon guy was the father of Rufus. And then we find later that Paul in the book of Romans says, hey, I want you to say hi to Rufus, one of the church fathers. I think it's interesting. And I really think that probably historically his bo- he got saved, his boys got saved, and both his boys ended up being leaders in the church. We don't know that for a fact, but there's a lot of evidence that really points to that. And I have those verses there in your Bible. Now, can you imagine this scene And kids, just go there with me. Have you ever been hurt? Like, I mean, running across a blacktop, splat, burning hands, burning knees, bleeding, right? That sort of pain. Those times that you cried where you (laughs) couldn't get your breath because you were so much in pain, and then finally, you know, like kids do when it's real bad. That sort of pain, times... So much. At the same time, during that moment, everybody is hating you, spitting at you, throwing stuff at you. You're carrying the very cross they're going to kill you on. And you're probably not thinking in that moment about how much you love the people that are trying to kill you. You're probably thinking about yourself. Your pain, just holding this thing up. Just, if there was ever a moment of justifiable selfishness for Jesus, inward focus, it would have been right here. 
And he sees these weeping people. They're crying over him. Some of them are. Some of them are jeering. Some of them are weeping at the punishment he's enduring. You can put your hand down, bud. <laughs> at the cr- so they're crying, and he looks at them with his own tears, and he says, don't cry for me. He says, I weep for you, and I want you to weep for yourselves, because there's judgment coming for this action, and it tears me up. Can you imagine it? Like, so much of us would be like, there's judgment coming for these people, and rightly so. If someone is beating you, kicking you, insulting you, nailing you to a cross, you wouldn't say, I'm in pain over the fact that you're going to have to be judged for these actions, and I'm weeping for you. He stood over the city, right? And he wept when he entered the city because he knew judgment would come for their rejection of him. And here it is in the moment of their rejection of him, and he weeps again for them. He hasn't lost it. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. On the next page, I have an entire page of details, historical details of what a crucifixion was like. And I'll let you guys do that on your own. But here's the part that I want to get a hold of. Right at the very bottom of the page, I got a quote from David Guzik. And this is the scene that we need to understand. He said very clearly that he says, hey, I want you to know that even though I'm high, I'm in charge. No one will take my life from me. I'll lay it down of my own accord. And if, not if, as a sinless man, he wasn't subject to death. You ever think about this? Like, Jesus lives forever unless he gives up his own life. And that's what he says. Because he's not going to die because of sin like the rest of us. And so he's in full control, which is why he gives up his own spirit at the end. He chooses. And so here's the picture, and I love that scene of the passion where he is, he's led up there, and he's, he's whipped, and he falls, and he doesn't have enough, hardly enough strength, and he sees the crossbeam again, and he crawls over to it and lays himself on it. That's what we need to see is that at every moment, he is choosing this. He's not being forced into it. He says, if I wanted to right now, I could call a legion of angels and end this all. The most significant thing about Jesus' suffering, that he was not in any sense the victim of his circumstances, rather, he was in control. Jesus said of his life in John 10, 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. It's terrible to be forced to endure such torture, but to freely choose it out of love is remarkable. Again, we have this scene. He's now on the cross at the pinnacle of his suffering. You guys know a little bit about the cross. He has to kind of lift himself up just to breathe. His whole back is torn open. The pain of the whole, you know, disjointed 
arms and legs and the whole thing. And he looks at the people that are jeering at him. I mean, just for a second, put yourself there. The, the, the a pinnacle of the amount of pain and suffering someone could inflict upon you, your worst enemy doing it to you, you have the power to snuff out their life, you're hanging there, and the suffering is increasing, and they are jeering at you, hey, if you really are who you say you are, end it. And he cries out for their hearts again, Father, they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. Now here's what I want you to see. How many of you guys have been in your worst moment and have considered, you know, like Jesus struggling to intercede for you in that moment? Right? When he's standing at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, we all love that passage, that he's our advocate, he's praying for us all the time. It's not on our best day. It's on our worst day. That that's the scene, and we have that in Hebrews, we have that in Isaiah 53. I want to look at that real quick, and we're going to wrap this up, so Daniel, you can come on up. Look at the last two sentences of Isaiah 53, verse 12. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the wrongdoers. That's the scene. He's interceding for the, some of the other translations say, for the transgressors. That he stands at the right hand of the Father with that same heart on your worst day saying, Father, forgive them. I forgive them. Lord, would you stir them up to righteousness? Do you bring them to the fullness? Hebrews chapter 7 says something very similar. 1 John 2.1, let's look at that. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, what's it say? That's the moment that he is standing there saying, I'm praying for you, I'm praying for you. It's not the moment he's going... I've had enough. He says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Darkness covered the earth from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. There's actually a historical record that this happened. Hey, let's not lift the weight right now, guys. Let's go have a seat, okay? Thank you. We don't need backs popping The veil was torn, and he breathed his last. It says that he cried out with a loud voice. It is finished. The actual literal translation of that is, it's paid in full. And he committed his soul to the Father and chose to breathe his last. This happened at exactly the very moment that in the temple, the priests were sacrificing the Passover lamb. You could do a whole study of how that, the Passover lamb and the Passover events of Passover, just mirrored the real Passover lamb being slaughtered for us.
final quote I'll read. His work on the cross accomplished, Jesus yielded up his living spirit to God the Father. As he yielded his body to death on the cross, this shows that Jesus gave up his life when he wanted to and how he wanted to. No one took it from him. He gave it up when his work was finished. Jesus is not a victim we should pity, but a conqueror we should admire. Let's all stand. Lord, we're just asking you right now for a fresh glimpse of of your beauty. Would you let it pass over our hearts the scene of the innocent one giving up his life freely for the murderer. The one who chose to endure so that we could be free. The one who turned his face in the midst of his most difficult pain and suffering and looked to those who deserved that very pain and suffering and said, I love you with everything. Lord, let it wash over our conscience right now. Lord, for those that are feeling like they can't be forgiven, Lord, let them see you. If there was ever someone that couldn't be forgiven, surely it was the one who nailed him to the cross and lifted him up and jeered at him as he died. And he said, I forgive you. Lord, let it strike our hearts in this Christmas season. The baby born to die for the sins of the world. Lord, I ask that we would walk out of here with freshness of your love and forgiveness over us. Lord, even especially in this season, that this is the pinnacle season where we would demonstrate brotherly love to one another. Lord, touch us again.